So this episode of the No Limits podcast is a special one. And I say it's a special one because it is not my podcast. One of the great things about this whole podcasting world is sometimes you get guests on yours, sometimes you're a guest on theirs. And in this episode, I am speaking with James Gearin on his podcast called Behind the Shield. It's very, very cool what it is that he does. Um, so check out the podcast that we did together. Then head over to James's podcast and check out the other kind of people that he interviews. It's a very cool podcast and I'm very proud and honoured to have been a part of it. So check it out and let us know what you think. Well, Mark, if I want to say initially thank you so much for agreeing to come on. I'm always blown away by uh, by people like yourself that I reach out to and immediately you turn around and say you know that you'd love to talk to the audience that that listens to this show so my first thing is thank you very much no problem and thank you for saying blown away that was a perfect choice of words (laughs) (laughs) let me take my foot out of my mouth a second (laughs) (laughs) now you're putting feet in in your mouth come on (laughs) all right so where are we uh, where are you calling from right now i am calling from plymouth in england Plymouth sounds familiar. So uh, that is very close to where I grew up in Bath. Were you born there originally? Born and bred in Plymouth, yeah. And I was in Bath this week, actually. It's about about a three-hour drive from where I am, but there's a couple of twisty roads. So, you know, it's not too far in terms of mileage, but you know how it goes when the roads are a bit twisty. Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly a straight shot when you're driving in England. No. All right. So then, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd just love to explore your family unit because clearly, you know, your journey in life created the resilience that um, that you've shown dealing with the the hurdle that you were given. So, what did your parents do, and and how many brothers and sisters did you have? So, I actually have a uh, a twin sister. Um, not a lot of people know that. I don't know why they don't. It just has never really came up in conversation over the years, but I have I have one sister. She is a twin, and we were born, my entire family, mum, dad, sister, born and bred here in Plymouth. My parents, I think like most people of that generation, had a, had a couple of jobs over the years. My dad's main one was as a, a tiler. So he was a ceramic tiler. He used to do a lot of work with Tesco's on big contracts around the country. And then obviously a lot of private work um, when he could on, on people's houses, on our own house, that kind of stuff. And yeah, my mum had a lot of jobs too. She worked, you know, I couldn't remember them all, but she she had various jobs over the years, doing what she could to provide for the family. And I just had a very normal, um, quite privileged upbringing, really. Did you have any military people in your family or extended family? So here's a funny story. Last year, my nan, who is 86 now, I went around to see her and she said, oh, I've got something that you might like. So she went off to her room and she got it out and she bought out this little box. Now, I kind of recognized the box anyway and, and kind of guessed what it might be because, you know, being in the military and, and been on operational tours myself, I've received medals over the years. And this box she brought out was what I assumed to be some sort of medal or medals. And so she opened it up and there were five in there. And I said, who's are these? She said, oh, well, my dad was a Royal Marine in the Second World War and your granddad's dad was in the Royal Navy in the First World War. Yeah, no idea. 
No, I said, Dan, I joined the Marines in 2001. Do you not think it would have been a good idea to tell me that then? <laughs> because cause when you join the military, you know, it comes up in conversation a lot. Have you got any family in the military? And I've always been like, no, no, no one immediate, no one that I know of, really. And uh, I did, but I only found out last year. And um, actually, you know, I got, she gave me those medals and I got them tidied up and I got the ribbons replaced because they were all battered and, and torn. And I wore them this year to remembrance for the first time ever, which was a, you know, a really proud day for me. Oh, that's amazing. I had I had a similar experience and it was uh, my great uncle, but I became a firefighter. And it was kind of a sad thing because he was just getting senile when I did, but I didn't think I had any any firefighter in my family. And being a legacy is kind of a, you know, it's a revered thing too. But mm-hmm. he he was one of the senior volunteers in the London Fire Brigade during World War Two. And I only found that out when he was kind of, you know, on his way out. So it was, it was sad in one way, but it was, you know, like you, at least, at least you found out. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Right. Well, I want to talk another, another area. So here you are. And obviously fast forward to when we get to your career, the strapping Royal Marine. When you were young, self described, you were not the most athletic of children initially. No, I was not. I was chubby. I played a lot of computer games when I was a kid. Uh, exercise. You know, I did the usual stuff, running around with friends, running through the woods, climbing trees, bit of a kick around with the football every weekend, but nothing, you know, there wasn't anything really that I was focused on uh, when I was really young. Do you know what I mean? Not until I turned about 13, 14. Um, I started getting into sport a little bit and started to discover the joys of training and then uh, was it your journey into martial arts that was the pivotal point though as as far as your body change it it wasn't really so you know i trained in muay thai full contact kickboxing from about 11 or 12 years old but never really seriously you know i just did it um because i enjoyed it i was quite good at it i didn't really see it as a career or really as a way of keeping fit as such, I just did it because I enjoyed it. And it was actually when I was at school, when I was about 13 or 14, I think I was 14, and I was sat in the canteen and I was eating one of those like pastry buns with pink icing on top that was filled with like jam and cream in the middle. And I was sat down, and if you imagine like a button-up shirt, you know, I'm sat down and it's kind of compressed and from the side, you could see in through my shirt and you could see my chest. And one of these guys walked past and like I said, I was quite chubby and he kind of looked in through the hole in my shirt and he said to me, your body's disgusting. And then he just walked off. And I was like, what? And so I put this bun down and I'm like, that was a bit of a weird random comment and I've never really thought about that before. So I ditched the bun and then I kind of took myself off and we had a, a little gym in the school and it was it was like a, a broom closet pretty much there was i think if i remember right there was a treadmill in there there was a bike like a lap hold down machine a pec deck and a handful of free weights and i kind of went in there and i locked the door and i undid my shirt and i looked in the mirror and i'm like yeah that kid was right you know my, my body is pretty disgusting i'm pretty fat and pretty out of shape you know i'm 14 years old i shouldn't look like this i should be pretty fit and healthy and literally in an instant 
that was the minute I was like, well, this ain't the way I'm letting things go. You know, and, and I was in the gym anyway. I only went in there to use the mirror because I knew there was uh, floor to ceiling mirrors in there. And I was like, right, I'm going to start looking into this training thing now and seeing, you know, I did, already did the kickboxing, like I said, and the, the Muay Thai, but you just turned up twice a week and, and did, you know, an hour here and an hour there. And now I was like, well, I need to do this seriously. You know, I need to get into shape, lose some weight. I had no idea really why I was doing it. I just didn't like what he said or the way it made me feel. And so I started training at lunchtime. So I'd lock myself in that gym and I started training with no real idea what I was doing. I just knew that I liked being in there. You know, I liked the feeling when I finished and it, it made me feel productive, like I was achieving something. Did you change the way you ate as well? Only slightly because I wasn't very well educated in that. You know, back then you, you, you kind of thought as a 14 year old, you, you starve yourself and just exercise those and that's really, really healthy, which it isn't. But I just kind of changed a few things, you know, and cut down rather than having this mountain of chips at lunchtime, I would have half the portion. And, you know, every now and again, I'd reach for a piece of fruit rather than a bag of crisps, you know, because I didn't really know what I was doing. And we didn't have the internet back then either. So it was a lot harder to find the information out and to figure out what it was you were doing. You just kind of knew general information and, and made the best of it. Yeah. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. We were just given the wrong information too, like told that, oh, if you're an athlete, you need to have bowls of pasta and, you know, yeah. Gatorade or Lucasade in England, you know, and then you realize that it's actually all sugary shit and we shouldn't be eating any of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And um, I don't know if you agree or not, but I think sometimes nowadays with the internet, it can be even worse because there's so many people out there contradicting each other. You know, one person says you need to do this, the other person says you need to do that. And if you're new to it and you're trying to figure it out, it can be quite overwhelming, all the information and not knowing what to do. Yeah, well, if you just give me an idea, I'm going to start a brand new fitness podcast where I can change your body shape and you give me 20 bucks. I'm just going to send you an email saying your body is disgusting. And then there you go. off you go. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to start a new one as well. It's called the Landmine Diet, where you can lose six stone in a split second. <laughs> <laughs> I do not recommend it. <laughs> Immediate results, guaranteed. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So then, if you wouldn't mind me, walk me through from this, you know, this uh, new zeal and this uh, desire to train, and obviously, you know, like like we all know that people that do train that that feeling of uh um you know the endorphins that you get from training but but that area in your life to the career choice of the the military yeah so you know like i said i was i was figuring it out for myself and so i eased into it and like you just mentioned there you know i, I didn't know what it was back then but i would finish the workout and the endorphins were released and i'd feel good and i found that helped me in school actually it helped me focus it got rid of a lot of stress and you know being sat down all morning learning stuff was was quite stressful i didn't realize back then but then training at lunchtime would help to alleviate that stress and refocus me for the afternoon and then when i would go training with the, with the kickbox and the muay thai i started to notice a bit of a difference in my fitness i was getting fitter i was getting a little bit stronger and you know i liked that as well because i saw some progress in that area of my life and then it wasn't really until about a year and a half later when I was just approaching my GCSEs and I've been training consistently. I wouldn't say it was, I was training really hard, 
you know, I was just being consistent with it and doing a little bit every day. And then I thought to myself, you know, when I turn 16 and I do these exams, after the exams, I've got to make a choice. Am I going to go on to college to go to university to carry on with education or am I going to get a job? Now, I knew I wanted a career as opposed to a job. I wanted something that I could progress in, that I could build on, that would help me develop as a person. I didn't just want a nine to five job and to keep chopping and changing every five minutes. And I kind of knew that I didn't want to go on to further education as well. You know, I didn't hate school. I did pretty good. I got 10 GCSEs. Nine of them were A to Cs. Uh, I got one D. So I could have easily gone on to further education. But I, I kind of had that that feeling inside that I wanted to go out there and make a name for myself and, and carve my name in the universe type thing. So I started thinking about it. And I kind of narrowed down the list of jobs that I wanted to do. And I think the training and the fitness had a big impact on it because if I remember rightly, it was either the fire brigade, the police or the military. And so I started, you know, asking friends, teachers, family about all these different areas. And pretty soon uh, after a bit of research, I kind of marked out the, the police and the fire brigade and focused on the military. Now, it's a bit weird because I live in Plymouth. And it is is quite famous for homing lots of Royal Marines. But I didn't know who they were when I was a kid. You know, I just thought, like I think a lot of 15-year-olds do, if I want to be a soldier, I go and join the army. So I had a, a lot of the people that I grew up with were in the same school as me, but they were two or three years older. And I had friends who had already left and were already in the army serving in Germany, Kosovo, Bosnia, you know, and all those places. And, and their lifestyle looked kind of cool to me. They were coming home, you know, on these leave periods. They had brand new cars. They had money in the bank. You know, it looked kind of cool to me. So I thought, right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to join the army. So I went down to the careers office with one of my friends who was serving in the tank regiment. We spoke to the sergeant major down there. We got all the paperwork. I came home. I uh, had to get my parents to look at it because I was too young at that point to sign up myself. And then my dad told me that I had an uncle who was an officer in the Royal Marines. Now, he's one of, you know, when you have the people in your family that are uncles, you call them uncle, but they're not your mum or dad's brother type uncle. Yeah, yeah, close yeah, friends. Right. And um, so we went in the car and, and he only lived about 15 miles from where I am, just in a little place called Buckfastly. And I went up to see him. And he had served 22 years and finished as a captain. And he told me a little bit about life in the Royal Marines and how it was different to the army. I went back the next week to the career center again. I spoke to the Royal Marine. He sat me down and showed me a video. And from the minute I saw that video, I was like, this is what I want to do. You know what I mean? Because they, they, they had these guys that were jumping out of planes. They were going into contacts via boat. They were going in the contacts on their feet, carrying these big packs. They were operating in the Arctic, in the jungle, in the desert, in the woodland. You know, these were like, in, in my eyes then, like the ultimate flexible soldier, like some sort of superhero. And the whole thing, you know, the aura and the mystique or whatever you want to call it around the, about ironing this green beret, 
just kind of really appealed to me, you know, being told how many people fail to earn it and how hard the training is and, you know, what wearing that thing on your head actually means. And, and I was just obsessed from that minute. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to test myself, you know, do the hardest thing that I can do. And I want to earn one of those green berets. So for the rest of my life, I can say, you know, I did that and, and I earned that and no one could take that away from me. So I went and applied for the Marines instead. Right, and just to clarify, because we have you know a Marines in in America, and obviously the Royal Marines back home, and then you use the term Commando and Green Beret. Can you sum up? Because I'm terrible at tripping over military terminology. Being a fireman, and I call Marines soldiers, and I get in trouble and use the wrong ranks. So, if just just okay. uh, give me like a, a two minute overview on on the description of Marines, Green Berets, and Commandos, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, so the the correct term is Royal Marines Commando. Uh, that's our full title. And I, I guess the closest equivalent in America, what you would compare us to, and some people will agree, some will disagree, is probably the Navy SEALs. We, we are the Navy's infantry uh, over here. And we are, we're an elite regiment, elite unit of men. Uh, it's the longest and hardest regular forces infantry training in the world apart from special forces um and at full strength we're only seven thousand men strong so it's a very small tight-knit elite group of men um and it's very very difficult to get into right so what did the because it's 30 30 week boot camp when you did it it's 32 now is that right that's right yeah we yeah. started back when i did it and, and i believe they extended it by two weeks because of the the larger number of weapon systems that people get trained on now when we we're in afghanistan they started using different weapons and they um they extended the training to incorporate that right so what just if you again give us kind of a lead us down the road of what kind of training that you did in those 30 weeks and what made you successful versus the people that got washed out so you start off um the first two weeks are in what they call the foundation block which is where you learn and it sounds daft. You learn how to brush your teeth, how to shave, how to wash yourself properly. You learn how to iron your clothes, how to make your bed, how to polish your boots, how to wear your uniform, all that kind of stuff. It's like your little uh, induction into the Marines. It's still pretty fast paced. You know, you're up again every morning at five o'clock. You're going to bed late, you know, learning all these skills. You're in one massive room with, you know, between anywhere between 50 and 70 strangers to start with. And then when you do that and you finish the foundation period, you then move into your your main body of infantry training, which stretches on for uh, another 24 weeks, I believe, if my maths are right. And then the last, like I say, it might've changed now, the last four weeks, you go into, maybe six weeks actually, you go into what they call the commando phase which is where you do your specialist training, which is what makes you a commando. So it's all that, you know, all the stuff you've learned in that accumulated period put into this commando phase, and then they throw in all those tests that we do. So the endurance course, the 30-mile speed march, the nine-miler, the, the Tarzan assault course, uh, the, field, the live firing exercises, the final exercises, you know, the big yomps across the moors, all that stuff. Um, into that last little bit of training 
And then the very final week is the marching about and the, and the parade and the ceremonial stuff, getting ready for finishing your training and what we call passing out and going to your unit. Brilliant. All right now, the, again, that seems like you set the bar very high and it does kind of parallel with a lot of the special ops guys that I've had here. Um, in my profession, I'm a, I'm a true, true believer that if you set that bar high, you end up with some incredible men and women, you know, firefighters, police officers, whatever profession it is. Um, so what, again, what, what was it that got you through when that bar was set high where you only end up with 7,000 men at the end total? Do you know what it was? When so you, you got to bear in mind when I joined, I was 17 years old and I remember those first two weeks in that foundation block, just every night going to bed thinking, this is shit. I want to go home. And I only lived 45 minutes away. And I just kept on thinking to myself, I'm just going to get on the train and go. I don't want to do this. I don't like this. This is out of my comfort zone. I'm, you know, I've got weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to go yet. And I'm only, you know, just started. I'm going to quit. But then I kind of just broke it down into, you know, one day at a time. And I thought, well, just focus on doing one day at a time, you know, and then before you know it, a week will be gone. And then you're one week closer. And then break that next week down into a day at a time. And then another week will go and you'll be another week closer. And so I started doing that. And as it progressed, the training, and it got progressively harder, and those thoughts crept into my mind again about quitting and giving up, I somehow had this ability to really vividly imagine myself stepping off that train back in Plymouth, where I, where I came from, having not earned that green brain after telling everybody that I, that I failed. And I just couldn't, it made me feel sick. And then, you know, 17 years old, I'm like, what am I going to do the rest of my life if I quit? And that really drove me on. When you're cold, wet, tired, hungry, sleep deprived, your feet are bleeding and covered in blisters, you've got webbing bands all over your back, you know, you've been in the field for a week and you just want to, you're just like, oh, I want to go back to my bed. I want to watch a DVD. I want to get a takeaway pizza and just be a civilian. You know, that thought of stepping off that train and saying to everyone, I failed. I wasn't good enough. I was like, no way. There is no way I'm doing that because I'm 17 years old and I have to carry that around me for the rest of my life. And so I just said, no matter what happens, I'm just going to push myself to my absolute limit whenever I need to. And I'm going to get through this day by day until eventually I get that green beret. Beautiful. And I think that that's, that shows that it's a good system and a good, a good uh, series of training because when you take a step back and look at the career that you do, you did that, that I do, if you quit when you're on the job, you know, your, your fellow, uh, Royal Marines are going to die or the civilians you're protecting are going to die. And in my case, you know, someone's going to burn to death or bleed to death in their car. And, and I think that's why it's so important to keep these bars set high and, and, and test people like you and me to see if we're going to quit because when the shit hits the fan, you don't have that option or, or literally someone is going to die. Right. And, and you know what's, what's beautiful about that is that when the shit does hit the fan, you can look to your left and you can look to your right and you can do it calmly knowing that those people left and right of you have gone through exactly the same training that you have and that they're going to get you back. You know, they're going to have your back and you're going to get through whatever it is you're facing because you know how good they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to talking about you know the the event where that did happen. I've heard you recount the the story before, and it sounds like the the men to your left and right 
absolutely did what they were trained for. But before we do that, I'd love just to explore your first tour to contrast it um, and then, uh, you know, progress chronologically to that point. So uh, when when were you deployed and where were you deployed? So my first deployment was in 2003 when I was 19 uh, to Iraq. And that was on what was called Operation Telic One. And I was working with Royal Marines headquarters. Uh, we were first over that border from Kuwait into Iraq. Uh, we took over Azerbaijan naval base and set up a, a command post in there. And pretty much worked out of there for the three and a half months that we were in country. But to be honest, you, you can't even compare the two, Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, this sounds bizarre maybe, but I found Iraq very boring. The time just dragged out there. You know, I, I didn't fire one round uh, while I was out there. I got a very good suntan. Um, but honestly, I just found it boring. There was nothing going on for me personally and the guys that I was working with. Um, and I, I kind of came back quite disillusioned. You know, you've got to imagine as a 19-year-old with, you know, a Green Beret having just gone to war all before your 20, 20th birthday and you come home and think, is that it? I did all that training, you know, and push myself that hard to go and sit around and not do much for three and a half months in a war zone. And I thought that's what it was going to be like in every every deployment that I went on. You know, yeah. Then, then uh, just just to backtrack for a second, had you already enlisted when nine eleven happened, or was it right after? So I enlisted on February two thousand one, and I finished my training in October that year. So literally four weeks before I finished my training was when we all saw nine eleven happen. So we knew that we were going to be going straight out into some sort of conflict. And early two thousand two, January two thousand two, I think it was, I was put into pre-deployment training to go to Afghanistan on something called Operation Jakana. Now that, for whatever reason, didn't happen to the scale that it was meant to. I think it ended up being more of a special forces thing, so I didn't go. And then 2003 rolled around and we went to Iraq instead. Right. So after that first uh, deployment, you actually came out, didn't you? Is that right? I did. I came home um, in 2005, my first daughter was born, Kezia, and I thought, right, I would have served my minimum time of five years. I've been to war. I've had my Green Beret. I was still, I think, 21, 22 I would have been when I left, still young enough to start a new career. So I put my notice in and I'll leave. And so that's what I did. I, you know, I'd signed off, swiped my 12 months. I came outside and, um, you know, things didn't work out with my daughter's mum as I was leaving. And so my life was in a bit of chaos. I ended up going to South Africa and training as a bodyguard. And I came home and while I was looking for work as a bodyguard, I started working on nightclubs as a bouncer. Now, I don't know if it was because I was so young or I just didn't know anybody in the industry, but I, I couldn't get any work as a bodyguard either you know, in the UK doing what I thought was the glamorous stuff, looking after celebrities or back out in the desert doing that more commercial stuff, um, living out of a duffel bag for a couple of months at a time. I just couldn't get my foot in the door. And it was also the time 
where the security industry was getting regulated by the SIA. So we all had to have these licenses and these badges, which I, which I had, but the police were kind of clamping down on doormen because I think they were quite notorious back in the day for being thugs and bullies. Um, so literally, I, this, this sounds like an exaggeration, but I, I could have stood there and got punched in the face in front of a policeman and, and I would have got arrested. You know, it was, it was going that crazy at that time. And, and I ended up getting arrested a couple of times and I think I panicked. You know, I was like, "This is what's going on here? One minute I'm a high-flying Royal Marine with a, this massive career ahead of me, proud of what I'm doing and, you know, the world is my oyster. And the next minute, I can't even go and do my job without getting arrested and getting looked at as a scumbag and a bully and a thug. You know, and it, it was happening multiple times. And I was like, this is not good. You know, this I, I, sh- I don't deserve this. This is not me. I'm not a bully. I'm not a thug. I just seem to be getting the wrong end of the stick all the time. So I kind of panicked and, you know, ran back to the careers office and went, look, I'm a civilian now. I've been outside for like 10 months. I don't like it. Let me back in. So they drew up the paperwork and I signed back on a dotted line. And because I'd only been a civilian for, uh, it was just about a year, I think, at that point. Uh, there was no need to go through all that training again. You know, it was just a case of doing some annual tests like shooting and fitness and uh, NBC training with the, the CS gas and that kind of stuff. And then I was back in early 2007. I rejoined, was back in and got drafted to a place called 40 Commando, which is about an hour and a half north of where I live, just outside of Devon. Right. And then, uh, so you guys were deployed back out to Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I, so I had a choice when I rejoined. I could have either gone to Limpston, which is where we do our training. That's a non-deployable unit, um, which, you know, isn't particularly exciting. If you're, you're fresh in your career, it's kind of somewhere you want to be where you're finishing off if you're trying to sort your life out. Or they would send me to 40 Commando, who were due to go out to Afghanistan next. So it was kind of a no-brainer for me. You know, I kind of felt at that point in my life, really overwhelmed and out of my depth. And I thought getting out of the country for a bit and just resetting and refocusing would have been a good thing, you know, and I could have came back after Afghanistan and picked up my career with a, a nice, fresh, positive spin on it and, and start taking it in a, in a good direction. So I joined 40 Commando, quite excited to go out on this deployment and to sort myself out. And that's what we did on the 7th of September, 2007, we landed in Afghanistan. Right now, leading up to you know, Christmas Eve, what kind of uh, action had you seen um, this time around? Obviously, Kuwait, like you said, was not a shot fired, but what was your experience the second time? It was completely different. Like, it didn't matter what time of day it was, day or night, whether you're sleeping, eating, sat on the toilet, if you're on a foot patrol, whatever, in any split second from anywhere, you could have got attacked. You know, you were in constantly in firefights, constantly having rockets and, and mortars thrown at us, you know, constantly having to observe the enemy, going out and taking the fight to them at the same time, protecting civilians. It was very kinetic, very full on we, we had to be very proactive out there we weren't sitting around for any length of time we were doing stuff every day you know just always on the move always doing something and always in some sort of action right so then well i guess that takes us to christmas eve 2007 so 
I know you've obviously you know recounted this story many many times, but some of the kind of bits and pieces I've heard from from when you've spoken about it before, it's such a fascinating incident from a trauma medicine point of view as well. So if you don't mind, I'd love to explore that evening a little bit and, and, and ask you some stuff about you know the the triage and some of the treatment and things like that. Yeah, no problem. Um, so we 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 just got tasked with going on another one of our foot patrols. You know, we'd been doing it for three months to that point, and the ones we we'd done prior to this one, we had a an objective and a mission. We would push out one, two, three, however many miles. We'd be out for five, six, seven hours at a time. You know, we come back having gathered intelligence and you know all this kind of stuff. We had an, an objective when we left, but. The whole idea of this patrol was that we would leave the camp out of the rear entrance. We'd go in two sections with eight men in each section. One would go north, one would go south. We were to patrol the immediate perimeter around the camp and then meet at the front entrance, close things down and come back and come back in the camp. So it was really because we didn't have much going on at that period around Christmas, it was really more of a show of presence, you know, because we, we were aware that we were always being watched. So we had to show that we were always out there doing something and getting boots on the ground and, and taking the fight to the enemy, even if we weren't, you know, particularly doing that. We didn't have much of a mission to go out and conduct. So we left that morning on Christmas Eve. Uh, I was in the section went north, the other one went south. And then we went out and we did all the same basic, low-level military kind of stuff that we'd done to that point. About six hours into it, both of these sections now find themselves at the other side of the camp, at the front entrance, ready to close things down and finish up for the day. And the section that I was in was tasked with giving the other section overwatch. So we basically had to get into to fire positions, protect them when they were vulnerable so they could come back into the camp, they would then get behind the perimeter wall of the camp. They would then provide cover for us so we could get back in safely. And then we'd finish up for the day. You know, quite pretty standard stuff, you know, looking out for the rest of the guys and just making sure everyone's safe. So we all started taking up fire positions. Um, I kind of waited till near the end to take mine up. Um, I was actually second in command of the section, so I had to be in a specific location and do some checks. And when everyone was happy with their positions and their area of responsibility, I walked over to the position that I'd selected for myself. And as I went to get down on my stomach, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Right. Now, I heard you mention about yeah, the traditional IEDs were were a certain power. They were just looking to maim. So then obviously you guys all flocked to, to your injured uh comrade and then and then they do the you know the secondary attack what was different about this particular one that you stepped on so my ied was a it was an anti-personnel mine which as you just said it is designed to maim someone to blow a leg or a foot off so that when they when the rest of the guys come to help him the enemy will follow up with like a small arms attack and try and kill everyone but on top of the anti-personnel mine was also the warhead of a 107 millimeter Chinese rocket. So they had double stacked this thing so that when I stood on or now on the warhead of the rocket, it put pressure on 
the antiparsonal mine. The two plates in the antiparsonal mine touched and detonated, which then detonated the mine and the warhead. So I kind of got blown up twice, if you like. And, you know, a 107 rocket warhead would take the side of a building off if you fired it at a building. It would put a big old hole in the side of a building. So I was very, very lucky. I think because where we took cover was like in a, in a bowl, I think that this device must have been at some sort of an angle because if it had exploded straight up, there would have been nothing left of me. Uh, it would have just been a, a pink cloud. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it must have been at some sort of an angle, and I was just very lucky that it detonated in the in the direction that it did. It's just it's crazy listening, obviously from from someone that's never been in that situation. But I had Rob Jones on a while ago, who's a fellow Invictus athlete on the American team, um, and he lost both of his legs. But if my memory serves me right, one of his friends stepped on the IED, but because it blasted outwards, his friend yeah. that stepped on it wasn't hurt. But Rob was right next to him, and he he lost both his legs. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. So then you, you have this explosion again, if you wouldn't mind, I know you, you've told the story many, many times, but just kind of walk us through the next few seconds, really in minutes at most. So initially I didn't know what had happened because I was in no pain. And when it, this device had exploded, it created a big dust cloud because the ground in Afghanistan is very sandy and, and very dusty. And I thought initially that we had been attacked. You know, I thought someone had fired a rocket or a mortar on our position. And so my initial reaction was find out where the attack came from and then just start raining hell down on this position and get all the lads out of there and make sure that no one gets hurt. Now, I couldn't see initially because of this dust cloud. But in my head, I was, you know, I'm filled with adrenaline right now. And I'm trying to figure out what to do when this dust cloud settles. And I remember thinking that where I was positioned, about 600 meters behind me, uh, down beneath us, because we were quite high up, there was a small rectangular forestry block, and everything around it was just flat mud fields. So I remember thinking, if someone's going to attack us, if they've got any sense, that's where they're going to do it from. So I was thinking, right, wait for this dust cloud to settle, turn around, get eyes on the forest. Even if you can't see anyone, just start firing into there, because the chances are that's where it's going to have came from. And then hopefully somebody in camp will get on the, the HMG and then just tear the forest down with a machine gun. So, you know, this all happened really, really quickly. You know, I couldn't possibly comprehend the time uh, realistically, but basically this dust cloud settled. And as I was trying to turn around, I kind of realized that I couldn't. And then sort of looked down to figure out why. And then noticed both my legs had been ripped off from the knee down. Right. And in, in the, the documentary, obviously you actually get to see the extent of your injuries. It's pretty graphic, but I mean, you know, they got some incredible video footage of your actual, um, you know, post injury, oh, excuse me, post explosion injuries. So what was the initial treatment for, for the guys around? And also let me, let me back up. What was the initial reaction and, and, and did their training kick in as far as an event like that? Yeah, I mean, the guys around me were absolutely phenomenal. You know, I, I noticed that I saw what had happened to my legs, and it's so difficult to try and explain, unless you've been through a traumatic incident, what it feels like. You know, it's very surreal. It feels like you're dreaming. There's no pain. Um, you kind of know it's happening, but it doesn't feel real. 
And um, I remember looking around and seeing the guy in charge of the section, who was a friend of mine, Sean, that I went through training with. And while I was looking at this and trying to make sense of it and not really believing it had happened, just a look on his face kind of said to me, yeah, it is happening, Mark. You need to do something about it. Um, and I kind of went back to look at my legs to give myself some sort of final confirmatory signal that this was real and that I had to do something about it. And as I was looking back, I saw my arm lying in the sand. And at that point, I actually asked Sean to put a bullet in my head because I, you know, I just was in so much shock at what I was looking at. My immediate reaction was, well, this is shit. I don't, I don't like this. So I'd rather die. Um, obviously he didn't do that. He's a bit more level headed than I am. And all the guys around me, they just did exactly what they were trained to do. It, it was so cool, you know, because you'd think in that situation, people would panic and everything would go to shit and it would be just chaos. But everyone just did exactly what they knew they had to do before we, you know, the tasks that we were given before we'd been on the patrol. So one guy's on the radio and he's calling in an evacuation. You know, one guy's making sure that we're in a defensive position in case there is a small arms attack follow-up. The guy closest to me is on his belt buckle, clearing a safe route to me for when the medic gets there so he doesn't risk running over any other devices. And everyone just clicked straight into their their role and their responsibility. And when the medic did get to me, he ran straight in because the path had been cleared. He was protected because someone had already cordoned off the area, made it made us um well protected and then the medic got in and he started putting tourniquets on my limbs he asked me to help tighten the one up on my arm because i you know i was lying there with my eyes closed just literally bleeding out and he needed to keep me responsive he then pulled a stretcher out and he went to put me onto the stretcher he hooked both his hands under my armpit and he dragged me onto the stretcher now i wasn't in any pain until that point and when he when he put me on that stretcher, it felt in my right leg like somebody had just jammed a screwdriver under my kneecap and just started ratcheting up on it. And so I, I kind of asked him to put me down and I looked down to where the pain was coming from and there was like a, a tendon or a nerve or something coming out of my leg and it was going into my boot and my foot was still in my boot. So he, I guess where he had pulled me and the weight of the foot and boot had stayed on the floor, it, it had pulled on this nerve or whatever it was and caused the pain. So he had to then pick that up and put it on my stomach and put me on the stretcher. They got me off the uh, the high feature that we're on at the minefield. They put me in the back of a vehicle. As the vehicle was going up the incline to go back into camp to the helicopter landing site, the, the driver you know, he, he was driving quite aggressively because of the terrain and the fact that we had to get back for this helicopter. Uh, me and the medic fell out the back. As I was kind of half in, half out, the driver swung around, grabbed whatever he could grab to keep me held in the vehicle and ended up holding on to the femur bone that was poking out my right leg. He then, he left the medic because the other section that we were working with earlier in the day, they were still at the bottom of this hill. So he was protecting, he was safe. And then he got me to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing I remember is the helicopter landing. And 
the heat of the exhaust beating down on me and then just the sandstorm that it created from the propeller blades. And then I, I blacked out, which is the point where they tell me I effectively died. I showed no signs of life. Yeah, well, I want to go back just to the scene for a moment. So there's no better illustration than what you just told us as far as training, um, drilling to the point where you fall back to that level of training, where it's impulsive and also having a selection process that when, as we said earlier in this interview, when the shit hits the fan, those men in this case not only fall back to their training but act instead of freeze. Yeah, you, you've got to bear in mind, I'm lying there. I'm trying to figure out what's actually going on and make sense of it. I'm bleeding to death. And one of the things I can remember is these guys are fucking awesome. Like, just they just doing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, they're just professional as hell and they're doing what they're trained to do. And even though, you know, to, rem- to look at, there was just so much blood and stuff coming out of me, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I was going to be okay. Because I knew that I was in the best possible hands that I could have been in. Yeah, and it sounds like you were. I mean, it, it, it sounds incredible because no one really knows what they're made of until they're faced with something like that. And it sounds like everyone on the scene there stepped up and did exactly what was required of them. Yeah, and it's funny because when you, when you drill this stuff and you train, people will get it wrong a hundred times. But when you need to do it for real, it, it's just slick. And I don't know what it is. I, I just guess something kicks in in your body and you're like I can't fuck this up and they just get it right and you know luckily they did yeah well and it's it's a hundred times muscle memory as well and that's the problem that I see you know in my profession is there are people that are afraid to go to training because they don't want to look stupid and it's like that's exactly where you're supposed to fuck up over and over and over again because then just like you said when when you get that adrenaline and you get that flow state hopefully you'll fall back on that and you will get it right exactly Right, well, let's talk about the back of the helicopter and triage because that's another incredible <laughs> twist in your life story. Yeah, so when I was put on the back of the helicopter, they obviously checked me for all my vital signs. So they checked for a pulse and I didn't have one. They tried putting fluids into me through an intravenous line, but all of my uh, veins had collapsed because of the massive blood loss. And they put an oxygen mask on me, which they were hoping would steam up to show that I was breathing. But it didn't. So they put me in the corner and they just called it. They said, right, this guy's dead, leave him. Now, the reason they did that was because another guy was injured in the blast, but he just had shrapnel in his back. So the way you prioritize a casualty in that situation is if you've got a guy that's dead and a guy that's dying, as harsh as it sounds, you leave the dead guy and you start to work on the guy that's dying because you could potentially have two dead guys. So they had to make a very quick call and be like, right, this guy's not responsive, leave him. Let's get the work on this guy. Now, luckily, as one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go and work on the other guy, he saw my eye flutter, which meant that my heart was still beating. And he then alerted some of the other medics who came over to help him. And they performed a procedure on me, which had only been cleared for use three days prior to this incident and had never been used on a human casualty in the field before. You know, it had only ever been practiced in a, a nice, clean, calm, sterile um, surgery room, you know, like a practice facility. 
And now you've got to imagine we're on the back of a Chinook helicopter. People are dying. People are dead. There's sand and dust everywhere. There's this helicopter's banking from left to right. Everyone's filled with adrenaline. You know, so the first time they get to do it for real, that's the situation that they're facing. And the, the procedure involved them taking two drills and one person going in through the front and one going in through the back into my hip bone and then putting an intravenous line in through my hip right next to all my vital organs and everything. And they'd never, I think if I'm right, normally you do it in the the femur or maybe the, the tibia and fibula yeah, of the, the leg. Yeah, the tibia normally, just below the kneecap. Okay, but obviously I didn't have one. No. So they went <laughs> and um, they didn't even know if it would take. But somehow, fortunately, when, when the guy Millsy drilled it in, he locked it in first time, got the fluids in there, and they said within about three minutes, I was back up and awake and responsive and answering their questions. See, and, so, um, and again, yeah, yeah and then another, another, you know, win for training. And that's the thing is, is thinking around it because now we actually get to do it in the shoulder too. So in theory, you're one good arm. Um, it's just probably something they discovered years later. Um, that would have been a sight in 2018. But I think at the time, yeah, the tip was the one, and then if you did the the sternum, you had to have a special uh, set of needles. It's like a round one with multiple needles on it. So you take away what's traditionally, you know, your normal sight. You're now again, you were talking earlier about outside your comfort zone. Now you're having to to fall back in your training and and be uh, uh, in you know use ingenuity to figure out how are you going to get around you know this soldier's or this excuse me this uh, marine's injuries. Yeah, and again, just pure professionalism you know like I, I i love my job my job was easy you know what i mean here's a gun here's a bad guy go look after the good guys and it, it's pretty easy you know i kind of felt naturally like that i was good at that kind of stuff but you give me like a syringe or something and say save this guy's life when all that chaos is going on and i don't think you would have seen a very professional soldier in that situation from me uh but these guys were so good at it and you know, they, they just, you know, they just thought on the spot and like, okay, let's try this. Boom. And it worked, you know, and I, I think about that a lot, you know, and I literally, I'm so lucky to be here. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I you mean, know? yeah, I mean, it is the way you tell your story and all the things that could have gone wrong initially. And then, like you said, especially with triage, most people to, to notice someone that you've black tagged, that you've called deceased you know, breathing, you know, with, 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 uh, signs of life. I mean, that in itself, I think was, was bigger than, than earthly powers. If you believe in all that stuff or the universe or whatever, but that was obviously meant to happen. You were meant to be, you know, to, to, to be saved and obviously then ultimately do the work that you're doing now. Yeah. No, I'm very lucky. Right. Well, let's talk about that. So you're on the helicopter. They, they, they get the, uh, the blood pressure back. You're talking to them. So what were the next few months of, uh, you know, surgery and then recovery for you um, following the injuries? Yeah, so this helicopter flew me back to another base in Afghanistan where the field hospital was. And obviously I was a bit of a mess. And the surgeons, I think I, if you look at the photos, there was, you know, my legs were like amputated through the knee at that point but all the flesh and tissue was dead above it. So they had to pick a site where it was still alive and amputate there to reduce the, the possibility of any further surgeries. 
So they literally just lopped them off above the knee and then my arm above the elbow where all the flesh and tissue was healthy. Uh, they bandaged me up and then they flew me home on Christmas Day. And when I got back to the UK, I think about three or four o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day in Selly Hospital in Birmingham. And then when I got there, I was in a, in a coma for three days. And then I spent another four days on the intensive care ward. And I had to have round-the-clock medical care because there was a lot of dirt and dust and sand that was blasted up into my open wound, which could have caused an infection and I could have died from that. So I had to be monitored 24-7 for that first week. And then I kind of fought all that off, got out of intensive care in that first week and went up to what was called the Burns and Plastics Ward upstairs, which was where they were going to gradually reduce me off the pain medication they were going to introduce some light physiotherapy into my day. It gave me an opportunity to, as, as I came off the medication and got a little bit more with it, it gave me the opportunity to accept and understand my situation and then try and figure it out a little bit. And I, I think when I was up there, if I remember rightly, I, had, I only had three follow-up surgeries and they were just what they call clean outs just to clean out any debris shrapnel dirt and dust or whatever was in in my open wounds and reduce that infection risk again but i did six weeks in total in hospital and then i moved off to rehab to start learning to walk again right now you had uh, an interaction with a certain medical professional and i think this is very important to highlight kind of his his bedside manner and, and the effect that it had and this isn't even to blame this is something that we see in, in our profession with, with what i call compassion fatigue people that are kind of burnt out so the it was the amputation specialist was that right yeah it was it was about three and a half weeks into my recovery and i was i was doing pretty well you know i was feeling pretty positive um about things and this guy walks in and he introduced himself to me and he told me he was the the expert on amputations. He'd been doing it for over 33 years. And he said, look, you're going to have to get used to life in a wheelchair because I've never met anybody in my experience that's only got one leg missing above the knee that uses prosthetics all the time because it's too painful, it's too difficult to use, and it it's, um, takes too much energy. And then literally turned around and walked out. You know, and, and I'm like shit, that's not really what I wanted to hear. And, you know, of, of two low points in my whole recovery, that, that was the first one. You know, at 24 years old, you know, a week earlier, well, a couple of weeks earlier, you know, I'm six foot two, 16 stone, peaking my physical fitness, running around Afghanistan. Now I'm 24 years old, nine stone, four foot tall, being told that I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. Yeah, and this is you know, yeah. this is based on just because he'd never seen this happen. Just because he, yeah, I mean, I mean, the guy had, you know, thirty three plus years experience, so I couldn't really question it, and I didn't know anything about being an amputee. I'd never seen a guy missing three limbs before running around on prosthetics because it just wasn't on my radar, you know, beforehand because I'd never known anyone in that situation. So I just took what he said as fact, you know, and then just started trying to figure out what I was going to do the rest of my life in a wheelchair at 24 years old. Yeah, that's like t uh, Roger Bannister going, well, you know, never, no one's ever run a mile in four minutes before, so fuck it, I'm just going to give up. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so so if you don't mind, it just the, the mental side, because obviously I'm sure people are wondering about that. 
having been told that, what was your mental journey like for those next few weeks? Well, it was only about a week, to be honest, but it, it sucked. You know, I, I, I ignored phone calls. I turned visitors away, um, you know, stopped my rehab, just kind of ended up just watching DVDs back to back to try and escape reality. And about a week later, I had a visit off someone. Um, and this guy knocked on my door and I invited him in. Gosh, I was feeling a little bit better at that point. And he came walking in my room on two prosthetic legs. Uh, he was a double above knee amputee like me. He sat down and he told me how he was blown up by a suicide bomber in Iraq when he was serving in the army. He talked me through the entire process of getting from where I was in a hospital bed to where he was at that point. He took the legs off. He put the legs on. He told me through the fitting process. He told me what was difficult, what I'd find challenging. You know, I just spent hours with me telling me his story and sharing his experience with me, you know, and letting me know that actually, you know, you, you can have a decent life once you get out of it, once you heal yourself and get strong again, you know, and that really excited me. You know, once I'd seen this guy doing that, and I know he had two arms, so I knew it was going to be a little bit more difficult for me. I'd lost my dominant arm as well. But I knew that there were there were prosthetics out there and there were aids out there that could help me get my independence back. So I got a laptop in my room and I just started researching everything I could, you know, just trying to find other people around the world who had injuries similar to mine that were out there living their life using prosthetics and enjoying themselves. You know, did you tell him that he was a week too late? Because if he timed it perfectly, the doctor would have said, "I've never seen anyone do it," and then he walks in right behind him. Doing <laughs> <laughs> perfect. <isn't> <laughs> no, but I've been um, joking apart. So you just went on on the internet and you googled this injury, and all of a sudden, there's these pictures of people that are doing it. And I know that you found a group in America, but that again shows some of the closed-mindedness of some, not not saying all, some of the professionals that are dishing out this advice to patients on a daily basis based on you know, their own journey and yet you can freaking Google above knee amputee and you find all these people that are doing the exact opposite of what that doctor told you. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, I'm not going to say it was hard, but it was a little bit different back then because you remember dongles? No, I There's don't. A, the little, they were little like USB sticks what you put in your computer and that was the only way you could get on. That was before Wi-Fi existed, I think. So, and, and it was rubbish trying to get on the internet. So it was it was a little bit difficult trying to do the research because the connection was so bad. But um, yeah, I, I found people all over the world that were out there, you know, doing things and living their life. It was a little bit disheartening sometimes because a lot of these companies made these marketing videos. And, you know, I remember seeing a guy with an above elbow amputation with a prosthetic on playing basketball. And I had no idea whether you could or couldn't play basketball. And you can't really with an above, above elbow prosthetic, but it kind of got you all excited. And then you're like, oh, right, okay, you can't really do that. So you had to self-manage your expectations. But, you know, I found some people doing some incredible things and used that as motivation as I left the hospital and then transitioned into rehab and started learning to walk again. Right. Now, I just want to explore one thing that you mentioned a little while ago. I know you do talk about this on the uh, the documentary, but your friend Damien, um, you know, you were talking about missing some calls. Are you, are you, uh, you feel comfortable uh, telling us about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. So Damien Moverhill was a friend of mine. Uh, he was a corporal in the Marines from Plymouth, same as me. We'd served together in air defense troop back in 
2003, 2004. And Damien was in the same tour as me. And he came home January 2008 for two weeks R&R. And he left me an answer phone message. Uh, like I said, I wasn't answering the phone back then. I didn't really feel like talking to anyone. And he asked about coming up to visit me. And I never bothered phoning him back because so I wasn't up for it. And then he went back to Afghanistan. And in February 2008, he was killed by an IED. So, you know, I, I never got to to speak to him or to see him before he went back, which is something I regret. Um, but, you know, I just wasn't in that frame of mind to see anybody at that point. I just wanted to be on my own, you know, and just lock myself away from the world. Yeah, that's completely understandable. But it's, it's just so heart-wrenching as well, just as a tangent for a moment, that, you know, you I'm sure you and, and so many of the other men and women sign up hoping to go out there and and the 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 the, uh, the outcome i guess that's what i'm looking for of your uh, efforts out there results in civilians being saved and and de-escalating the violence but you just see over and over and over again from whatever military forces we have out there the ieds just taking life over life over life yeah, and it's, it's a pretty cowardly way to fight a war, if you ask me. You know, as a Royal Marine, I think most of us would happily stand toe-to-toe with anybody, anywhere in the world, you know, and, and have a dust-up. But you can't really have a fair fight with an explosive, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, mean, it's, I think a lot of us actually, you know, a lot of us, would, we used to say in, in the early days of the deployment, I'd rather be dead than go home missing a leg. But you always think, oh, it would never be me. It's never me it's going to happen to until it happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, well then, so you did find a group, uh, Dream Team Prosthetics in America. So how, how did you find them and what was the, uh, the experience with that kind of adventure out to the States? So one of the guys I found online was a guy called Cameron Clapp. Now, Cameron's a triple amputee. He was run over by a train in 2002 when he was 15 years old. And I mean, this guy was phenomenal. He is phenomenal. And he was doing all the stuff what I was getting told wasn't possible. You know, he, he was, um, his legs were similar to mine. His arm was a lot shorter than mine, but he would wear his prosthetics all day, every day. You know, he never used a wheelchair. He didn't have any sort of adaptions in his cars. He was just driving, using his legs. He was an adaptive athlete, running, swimming, surfing, doing all these kind of things and just really living his life and dominating. And I used to watch his videos and read his blogs online and be like, yeah, this is, this is what I need to achieve. I need to go and do what this guy's doing because if he can do it, then I know I can. I've got the same injuries, the same technology. You know, I just need to figure it all out. So I used to watch him for a little bit online for motivation. And then I eventually reached out to him and said, look, mate, this is who I am. This is what's happened. I think you're pretty awesome. And I'd really like you to teach me and train me so I can get to a level of independence similar to yours. So he emailed me back about a week later. You know, we became friends. He then introduced me to his team. You know, the guy that would make, the sockets for his legs, the guy that would 
program his legs because they have to be plugged into computers. The guys that would do all the adjustments and alignments on his legs, the guys that would train him to walk, the guy that made his arm, you know, the whole team of people that were behind the scenes that got him to where he was. He introduced me to those guys and everyone started helping me online. They would send me emails saying, you know, if you've got pain, pain in your legs, then try doing this and it will get rid of the pain in your legs. And, you know, if you want to walk down a ramp, do this is the technique you need to use. And they would tell me all this stuff online and I would put it into practice when I went into rehab and it just helped me break through those plateaus that I was hitting, you know, every couple of weeks as I was progressing and then just stopping and not being able to get it on any further. Now, eventually, and it was only about six weeks into it, um, but eventually these guys invited me out to America and said, look, come meet Cameron, come train with him, spend some time with him, and let's see if we can get you close to the same level of independence that he's at. So I booked my flight. I uh, got my accommodation sorted out. And on the 9th of June, 2009, I flew out to meet Cameron. The only thing was when I flew out there, they said to me, you have to come on your own, which was pretty scary considering that I had people all around me all the time doing everything for me. And I wasn't allowed to use a wheelchair. So I had to leave my wheelchair at home, which again, you know, at that stage of the game, it was so painful to just get around for like half a day. I was like, how do you expect me to go to the other side of the world, navigating airports, carrying my own baggage, getting on and off planes and all this stuff without any help, without a wheelchair when I get tired? And they said, look, this is the deal. You've got to either do what we ask you to do or, you know, you're wasting your time. So I bit the bullet in the end and I flew out there on my own on the 9th of June. 2009 I met Cameron I met his team and that was a trip that changed my life I never used a wheelchair ever since that day now you said about painful I want to illustrate something to people listening so above the knee amputee so when you're walking and this is the same with Rob Jones when, when you're walking with your lower limbs you all your body weight is basically on that femur bone pushing down against the skin that's been folded over it yeah and in your groin where the socket ends at the top and your ischial tuberosity, which is the bone which basically is connecting the top of your leg to your ass. Um, you know, so all your weight's going through all that all the time. You know, and it takes between three and five hundred percent more energy for an above knee amputee to do anything than it does for an able bodied person. So you're, you know, constantly tired in the beginning and you're in pain a lot. Um, not just from the prosthetics, but from your body readjusting, you know, to having no limbs and all the tenderness and soreness um, and everything that that brings with it. So, yeah, it was it was pretty hardcore, if I'm honest. Yeah, well, I got to see it. I got to witness it firsthand when uh, Rob Jones that I talked about, them, the American Marine, I met him in New York. He did a, a fundraiser and climbed the World Trade Center. Now, I climbed the World Trade Center, you know, lucky fucker with, with all my limbs still intact. But Rob basically bear crawled, you know, 100 floors vertically and again it was just amazing because you realize when you're watching you know athletes like him and you the 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 adaptations that you have to make and all the 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 normal biomechanics that that we're used to are, are taken away and you have to literally reinvent locomotion with what you've been left with exactly yeah and you just have i, I find now that you you use a lot more of your body than you ever thought about using 
prior to being injured. You just take it for granted. You've got hands, feet, toes, and fingers. You know, now I've, I use my arm stump, my chin, my shoulder, you know, whatever, you know, all these other bits that you think are useless, I now use them for, for different things. You know, like, I'm just trying to think of an example. Um, like when I do jujitsu, you know, I've only got one arm, but it hurts like hell if I drive my chin into your sternum and start wiggling it about or I put my arm stump on your throat, you know, that. so you, even though you think some parts of your body are useless now, you just learn how to use them and make them useful again. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had, uh, Kyle Maynard on, I don't know if you've, you've heard of him. He's, uh, yep. American mountaineer. Yeah. Uh, uh, what they call it? Congenital amputee, arms and legs. And yeah. he started uh, wrestling and doing um, MMA. And at first, he was getting beat up. No one had a problem with it. But then when he started winning, people were like, whoa, 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 this isn't fair. And it's funny when you said about the, the, the channel and those other things, you could just see how as you start winning, people are like, wait a second, these aren't in the rules. You can't do chins. <laughs> yeah, you can do what you want. You can do what you want. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of uh, of sports, so we we got you up to the point where you're working with Dream Team Prosthetics. So, what was the first uh, sport that you delved into as far as you know post injury? Oh God, when, when I went out there, they have a thing called the Endeavor Games, and they put me on some running legs. I never never ran before in, in prosthetics, and I didn't even like running when I had legs. And they ended me in this 100-meter race, and it was just awful. I was just garbage. I came last, and I was in a lot of pain. Um, and I really just didn't want to do it. It, it was horrible. I was, I, was, I, had, I was quite chubby again back then um, because I was kind of still eating what I ate before, but obviously not being as mobile. So I was a little bit out of shape, um, which made everything more difficult. But yeah, that, I remember that first time running, it was just horrendous. Just the energy that it takes and the balance and the concentration and the skill. Um, and I hated it. But I never really did sport in the beginning. I, I waited nine years to, to get into sport. Right. So after that horrendous race, you know, what, what were some of the ones that you found you did enjoy? Did you stay running or did you go to rowing or you know, what was the progression from there? None of it, to be honest. Um, I, I'm lucky. I've got a couple of friends that own gyms here in Plymouth, and I I knew I couldn't do kickboxing or Thai boxing again. So I, you know, but I used to enjoy weight training. So my friend gave me the key to his gym, and he'd let me go in there about five in the morning when they were closed. And I spent about six months just training and trying to figure out how to exercise certain body parts by adapting exercises. Because I, I didn't want to do it when the gym was open because I was quite conscious that I'd be getting in everyone's way and pissing people off. Um, so I did it while it was closed. And it took me about six months to figure it out. And I developed these routines where I could get really good workouts um, and actually feel like I used to feel at the end of a workout. I'd feel pumped up and, and out of breath and tired and like I'd actually achieve something. But I didn't do any of the other sports, rowing, swimming, hand cycling, any of that until 2017 that was when i started getting into all of that right now in preparation for the invictus games yeah so what what i do is every year at christmas and i'll be doing it in about two weeks i, I sit down right right where i am now at my desk in my office 
and I just start scribbling down all my goals that I want to achieve, achieve in the following year. And I sat down and, I, and usually I'll put like subheadings. So health, fitness, family, finances, career, whatever it may be. And I sat there and I was scribbling away and I just had this niggling feeling that, that I was missing something and I, I was forgetting to put something down. And so I closed my eyes and I just sat here in this chair and I kind of waited for something to pop into my head. And this jigsaw puzzle came up and it was like, you know, like I say, one piece was, was fitness and health. One was family, one was career. And there was one piece in the middle that was missing. And I was just trying to figure out what it was. And eventually I realized that it was sport. You know, in, in nine years of recovery, I hadn't done any sport. And so I started scribbling down all these goals for, for what I wanted to achieve in, in the world of sport. Now, I had seen a lot of my friends from rehab taking part in the Invictus Games, but it never really appealed to me because I'd never rode before. I didn't really swam post-injury. I'd never done those sports before, the athletics and all that kind of stuff. It didn't really get me excited, but I thought, you know, these guys have done really well not just in what they've achieved in sport, but it's helped with their recovery a lot and with their life a lot, both mentally and physically. So why don't I give it a go? You know, I've, I've covered most of the other things in nine years. I've got a, a full family now. I've got a job. You know, that's all going nicely. You know, let's do something I've not done before. So I applied for the Invictus Games. And I, I didn't think I'd get in because I didn't really know anybody. I wasn't in those circles. I wasn't in those cliques. Um, I'd never done any of the sports before. I had no experience. So I thought they'd just look at me and be like, well, you're not going to be any good. So we don't need you. But fortunately, after applying and going through the trials, uh, I made the team and got to represent the UK in Canada back in 2017 at the Invictus Games. Now, the trials were in Bath. Is that what you're saying? Yes. They were, yeah. Very cool, my hometown. It's it's interesting because in 2016, the games were in the Disney area and I was working for the fire department that protected Disneyland at the time. And ironically, and this is going to sound very unimpressive compared to your injuries, but I'd torn my knee literally about a week before so i wasn't able to be one of the medics that was you know attending that but when uh, when people ask about the royal family that's always the thing that i i kind of point to is the generation of you know william and harry and the altruism that they seem to have inherited from their mother it appears the invictus game seems to be one of the most uh uh, it makes me proud to be British if that's if that's what the royalty of that generation is going to be about, the charities and, and paying back to the people that serve their country. Yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. Right. So in 2017 then, what what was the result? And obviously I'm going to lead into then what happened in 2018. So yeah, 2017, we went out to Canada. My first experience of any adaptive sports apart from the little the camps that I'd been on I, I didn't know what to expect I didn't really if I'm honest in the sports of that I didn't really know the rules completely or the etiquette or the procedure or what it was like to compete in those environments I just kind of went into it blind um but I did all right I ended up with two silver medals two bronze medals and then the Jaguar Land Rover award for um overall best athlete of the games which was kind of cool if you think about every nation, every athlete and competitor, 
you know, I managed to get that out of all those people, which I was really chuffed about. As for my first games ever, I didn't think it could have gone much better than that. Yeah. So then what about 2018? Well, when I left 2017, obviously I'm I'm armed then with a lot more knowledge. I, I had the experience of competing. I knew what the atmosphere was like. I knew how it all ran. I'd learned more about the sports. But in Canada, I was very, you know, it was all brute force and ignorance for me. There was no techniques, no strategies and anything I did. It was just fitness, fitness, fitness and just muggle my way through it. But in 2018, I thought, well, I've got this experience now. You know, maybe I should learn how to do these sports properly. You know, listen to my coaches a bit more and then try and be a bit more scientific with it. And so that's what I did. I applied again. You know, again, I was lucky enough to be selected and we started training and I just changed my approach. I looked more into strategies, into techniques, um, focused more on recovery. Just didn't I didn't worry too much about thrashing myself as much as I had the previous year. Um, and it was really handy to to have that experience of actually having competed once because I knew what to expect now when I went into it. I didn't have any of those things to worry about because I'd done it before. Yeah, and what was the result? So this year was four gold medals, one silver medal, and two bronzes. So a little bit better than last year. And a nice way to finish off my Invictus career. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to just kind of underline, because now, now you've told us about the two years. So you went into these sports having not really you know, done them really before. Do you think that it was, again, back to your Royal Marines training you know, physically, obviously, but then more so because you had those limbs taken away from you, more so the mindset that got you to that level in such a short amount of time as far as preparation? Do you know what I think it is? And I've, I've thought this for a long time, right? If, if you're born fit and healthy and with all the same advantages that most of the rest of the planet are born with, I don't really see any reason why, if you see someone that's successful, you can't be as successful, if not more than they are. That was my mindset when I went to meet Cameron. I thought, well, this guy's a triple amputee. I'm a triple amputee. He's got this technology. I've got that technology. He's doing what I want to do. Why can't I do it? All I've got to do is copy what he did. And that's what I did when I went out and met Cameron and learned to walk again. And then I did the same thing with the Invictus Games. I looked at the people that had done it before and I thought, well, he's injured similar to I am and he can do that sport. This guy's injured similarly to me and he can do that sport. So I should be able to do him too. You know, and, and that's what kind of pushed me into it. And then I thought, well, now all I need to do is copy what they did and then figure out a way to take it a bit further, you know, because I wanted to be what in my mind I thought was successful and that was winning medals. So I wanted to win medals. Yeah, and it, it just, it's such a simple concept, but it, it is obviously so true is the difference between you and, and some people, you know, there's a lot of uh, victim mentalities going on, people that have had next to nothing happen to them in their life, but is just saying, you know, here's where I'm at. How can I, how can I make this work? How can I succeed instead of focusing on, you know, on, on what's negative, on what's, what's challenging you or the walls? It's like, all right, how can I jump this wall or walk around the wall or dig under the wall? Yeah, and if someone's done it before, then, you know, it, I don't want to get too crazy on you, but in, in you know what NLP is, Neuro Linguistic Programming? Uh, yes, yes. So in that, there's a thing called modeling, which basically means 
you take somebody that's achieved what you want to achieve and you model their mindset and their physical actions. So if you want to lose a bunch of weight, find someone that's been in a similar situation to you that's done it and just say, how did you do it? What did you do physically? What did you tell yourself mentally? You want to be a millionaire, you know, in, in I don't know, by selling cars. Go find a successful car salesman who's a millionaire and say, what did you do? How did you do it? I want to do it as well. And just copy them. That's as simple as it gets. You just copy them. And that's what I've done all throughout my recovery. I found somebody who's achieved what I want to achieve and I've figured out what they've done or I've asked them and I've just copied it. That's it. Yeah. And that sounds horribly close to the term mentorship, you know, finding someone that, that can teach you. But be prepared that they're probably going to say it was really fucking hard. And, you know, that's where you realize that there is no shortcut. There is no life hack for coming back from, you know, losing three limbs or, you know, whatever it is. But like you said, if they got there using that method, then you will. But you've got to understand that you've got to put in a shitload of work as well. And that is where, sadly, a lot of people stop and draw the line. You know what I mean? And it, they, a lot of people, that's where they make excuses and they say, oh, you know, I don't really want to do that. And then they'll turn around and say to you, oh, you're so lucky. Why am I lucky? Because I get up at quarter past five in the morning and I bum walk into a freezing cold garage and I do an hour on my bike and then stretching and strength and conditioning training. And then I train again in the evening. And I do that six times a week. And then I've been successful. How does that make me lucky? Yeah. I've worked really, really hard to get where I am. There's been a little bit of luck involved. I don't doubt it. There always isn't any success story, but you know, you've got to put the hard work and grind in and take action. Yeah. And there's always an excuse. I mean, I've had it, you know, as, as a, again, I've never had any physical trauma really of any significance, but I've always been very skinny. So as a fireman, people were like, oh, it's easy for you. You don't put on weight. I was like, no, it's not easy for me. I'm built like a fucking toothpick. I've had to work to get my strength. You know, right. everyone has areas that they've got to work on and no one wakes up in the morning as this elite athlete without putting the work. No, I know you're right, 100% right. Um, but people just, they look at it and yeah, it, it just, it annoys me when they say, you're so lucky. I'm like, okay, cool. You, you call it luck, I call it preparation and hard work. Yeah, exactly. Chance favors are prepared. So when the luck comes along, if you're not ready, then it's just going to bypass you. So you, ha if you do get luck, you've got to be ready to accept that opportunity as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I, I want to highlight another area because I, I am just so endeared by people like yourself. Um, and I say this for one specific reason. Whether you've been injured, whether I've got soldiers or, you know, people that have come on the show that didn't have any injury, they just had a, a career as a, a SEAL or a firefighter or whatever it was, but you served your country. In your case, you served and, you know, you had a life altering injury as well. But when you came out, one of your goals, and this has happened on many, many of these people I've had on, was how can I do more? And and I know that you've done, you know, fundraisers for the Royal Marines Association, Royal Marines Foundation. So what was that aha moment when you realized that that was something that you wanted to do as well after your uh, your rehab? You mean the fundraising side of things? Yeah, yeah. Just, just giving even more than you'd already given. It's, it's a bit of a combination, really. First of all, these charities are lifelines. And, you know, some of them don't publicize a lot of the stuff they do. And my family have been hugely supported from day one, particularly by the Royal Marines charity. You know, and you can't just go through life taking. 
you know, and, and you never, I never once felt obliged to give or to help, but I just felt compelled to. I wanted to say thank you. I, there were more and more people coming through the system. I knew that the money was getting spent and, and I wanted to do a little bit selfishly to make myself feel better, you know, to do a little bit of good, but also to make myself feel better, you know, and, and it helped in my rehab. I would set myself some sort of physical challenge. Like in, in 2010, you know, me and a bunch of mates ran across America from New York to LA. It was a physical challenge, a mental challenge, but also it was a way to give back and to say thank you to these charities. So you, you kind of hit all three points, really, you know, mental challenge, physical challenge, contribution. So this you is know, from, a, from a guy that couldn't, that hated running 100 meters and he decided to run across America? Yeah, but it's, it was very slow. It was <laughs> <so> <laughs> Regardless, it's, it's 2,500 miles. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a long way. It took a long time, but um, it, it, it was slow. But, you know, even, even that, you just break that down into little daily challenges, you know, and you figure it out. But it, it's just nice to be able to give back. It makes you feel good. Um, you know, and you can you can have everything in the world that you want, big houses, fancy cars, millions of pounds. But the only way I think you can really feel truly fulfilled is if, if you're doing so to help other people. Yeah, that's, that's something. Yeah, absolutely. There's something that I've seen so much in, in people, that especially that have been through the, uh, the physical trauma, but even the mental trauma. Some of the people that have come out the other end, been some really dark places. Some of them literally were about to complete suicide that feeling of purpose that feeling of i'm valuable i'm able to give back i'm able to contribute was so life-altering for them and i see it all the time now in some of the you know the camps and organizations where they they were you know the the attendee they were the, the subject of that camp and then they become the mentor role and then they they are shepherding other people now and that seems like such an important uh kind of place physically and mentally for someone to get to yeah, because it gives you a sense of purpose, like you said, and we all need a sense of purpose to, to be motivated and, you know, give yourself a bit of an identity about who you are and what you stand for. But also, you know, these situations that we find ourselves in when you've faced adversity and, you know, you've got these challenges, they also give you a really powerful platform, in this, especially in this day and age with social media. You know, you can, you've got this platform now where you can raise awareness, you can do a lot of good, and you can do it pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week with social media. It's not like the old days where, you know, you had the one or two standout people, like, you know, you had Simon Weston from the Falklands, Douglas Bardo, who lost his legs and learned to fly again. Those are the guys back then who were like the unicorns. But nowadays, there's so many people in my situation all over the world doing crazy things and just putting it out there on social media, it reaches so many people and does so much good, you know, that you've got, a, it's the way of taking a shit situation and making it into something positive. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then you're such an inspiration to everyone else, like aside from the ones that can relate because they've been hurt, they've been at war, whatever it was. Hopefully anyone with any ounce of humility is going to look at people like you and, you know, Simon Weston and all these other um, you know, amazing people that have overcome their challenges and then recalibrate their own life. Like, yeah, I know it's really hard that my iPhone screen cracked, <laughs> but yeah. my life is fucking amazing. So let's, you know, let's go out there and do some good today instead of being a whiny little bitch. Exactly. 
Exactly. I think that was a Bible quote. I can't remember. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to talk about one other area before we, we tra- uh, go to some wrap-up questions. But another side of this, obviously, is the mental health. It sounds like your resilience and just your, your hard wiring really you know, kept you strong through you know, a huge adversity, really. How is mental health um, being addressed in the Royal Marines specifically? Are they doing a good job with that? We, we do a phenomenal job. Um, we, I said earlier, we're only 7,000 men serving at full strength. And I think there's like maybe 120,000 of us who are veterans. So we're a small organization and we like to look after our own. We've got what we call the Royal Marines family and the extended family. So when it comes to things like mental health, you know, you know you, that your op is there for you. And we've got, there are things set up in place. And it's brilliant. You know, I've got a friend, Jamie, who was a sniper. He was a sergeant. He suffered himself with mental health issues. He was very close to taking his own life. And now he runs an organization that helps other people that are struggling. And he takes all of his experiences, all of his training, everything that he's done over the years and learned, and he helps other people. You know, and, and it just goes round in a circle. And I, I think we're particularly good at it. Um, you know, I don't think anyone's ever really gonna completely conquer it, but we're pretty close, I think. Yeah, well, we need to to look at your model then, because I know in in the fire department, for example, we're starting the discussions now. We're definitely taking down some of the walls, but there's a lot of that bullshit 1980s fake machismo around it, where where it's stigmatized still, and you know, talking about feelings is weakness and i'll give you an example i live in this little community right down the road last night a 17 year old was killed after he wrapped his uh, car around a tree and burnt to death basically in there if he wasn't dead on impact so the responding crews on that particular day had to go and extinguish that fire and then obviously you know a face with the scene of that poor kid that uh you know went through that and this is a daily event in emergency services so then to have the audacity to say that that shit doesn't affect people is ridiculous. So the the people like the Royal Marines, for example, that are actually way past that and redefining it. Because if there's ever a, you know a definition of a man, I'd say that Royal Marines is is definitely up there. It's it's role models like you know your organization and mine that are in in the position, like you said, to lead and say, hey, I'm a fireman, I'm a policeman. This stuff is real, and I think we're pretty manly men, or you know, womanly women, or whatever you want to put it. But we we need to leave from the front and and make people realize that it's it's strength when you reach out and ask for help, not cowardice or or you know uh, weakness. No, I agree, hundred percent. And I think in in a situation like that, what you're talking about, um, I don't know what systems you got in place, but we had a thing called TRIM, Trauma Risk in Management. So when I got blown up. That was tragic for me, but the rest of my section and my friends had to watch that. So as soon as I was evacuated and they were taken back to camp, they were what we call trimmed. So a, a trained counselor who happened to be the sergeant major came down and worked with them immediately after the incident to make sure they were okay. And then would follow up with them throughout the rest of the tour. And then when they came home, you know, the, the responsibility is kind of on them then that if they find themselves suffering, they have to reach out for help, but then they know what's available. So I think in that situation you're saying, you know, like I said, I don't know what you've got in place, but 
from my point of view, it's, it's your hierarchy's responsibility to immediately, after an incident like that, get the guys back to the station and be like, right, not who wants to talk, because that singles people out, but everybody get in here now and do some sort of professional session with them or something to, to monitor them, follow it up for, you know, the next couple of weeks, couple of months, and then make sure that everyone is completely clear that if they find themselves struggling, this is available and this is where you go. Right. And is, you know? is that included when, when you're entering that profession? Is that kind of from day one, something that you guys are taught about so that you always know that's there? It wasn't when I went through, but I think it is a lot more now. Right. Um, because mental health now is something that we promote proactively. And it's not just things like post-traumatic stress. Everybody on the planet, I don't care how tough they are, everybody has mental health like they have physical health. You know, and there are different levels of it. You know, your physical health. You get overweight, it's bad. You get too underweight, it's bad. You balance it out, you know, and your wellness and health, and it's all good. It's the same with your mental health. You spend too long experiencing traumatic incidents, thinking negative thoughts, then your mental health is bad. You spend, I don't think you can spend too much time, you know, thinking positive things and experiencing positive things and filling your mind with that, but you've got to balance it all, you know, and your physical health is as, pardon me, your mental health is as important, if not more important, than your physical health, because if your mental health is bad, then inevitably your physical health will be, because you start comfort eating, or you start drinking, or you start taking drugs. And then your physical health deteriorates, and then it's a vicious cycle. But for some reason, like you said, everyone thinks when you say mental health, you know, you're not a man if you reach out and ask for help. And I think it's the opposite. I think you've got our balls to reach out and say, look, I'm struggling. Can you help me? And then if you've got a bunch of assholes who are in charge of you going, what are you talking about? Man up. Then, you know, that doesn't help at all. And, and those kind of people need to be re-educated or weeded out. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, mate. And you hit on a very important point as well that we don't do very well, which is we have CISD, which is kind of like TRIM, uh, Critical Incident Stress Debriefing. And it will happen, you know, for example, like that that uh, incident down the road here. And they'll come and they'll talk that day. But what people miss is what you said in the next breath, which is, and then you follow up the rest of the tour. So for us, it could be the rest of the career. You know, you always check on these people because... You know, I've, I've been on those calls where I've had a three-year-old and I've cut a dead three-year-old out of a car. You know, those are pretty, pretty, uh, you know, impactful moments in, in your life. And it may not hit then. It may hit, you know, 400 sleepless nights later when your sleep deprivation is just wrecking you. You just found out your wife was cheating and that is the moment that everything comes flooding back. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I really appreciate your uh, your perspective of that. And it's great to hear how progressive the Royal Marines are. So I want to I want to underline something. Well, a couple of things before we we transition to the closing questions. So your autobiography is Man Down, and you just released um, the uh, documentary No Limits. So let's talk about No Limits for a sec. At what point did you decide to put your story on screen? I had the idea a couple of years ago, um, but you know it was just it was just one of those pipe dreams, don't it? You you, you never think you could do that or you know the right people and you've got the ability to do it. And I started working with another former Royal Marine called Matt Elliott, who was finishing university and getting his degree in, in photography and videography and media studies. And we just said it a couple of times messing about. 
you know, oh, you know, we should make a documentary, you know, like a fly on the wall thing where I show people, you know, a little bit deeper than what I show them in social media. And, you know, I talk about what life is really like. And I show myself walking around on my bum and brushing my teeth in the morning and taking the kids to school and, you know, just reality. You know what I mean? Fly on the wall kind of stuff. So we agreed to do it. And then obviously I got accepted for the team for the Invictus Games and we completely changed direction with it and we went with that instead. But, um, you know, I, I just, I really enjoyed the whole process and I just, I didn't think I would, you know, but I really did. And it was just so nice to be able to share the experience and know that people are going to watch it and, and it might help in their lives. You know, and I've had such good feedback from it. Um, 20,000 views now up on YouTube. Um, not a single negative comment. Loads of people contact me daily about it. You know, they're telling me they've just watched it and, you know, they one minute they're laughing, one minute they're crying and, and all this kind of stuff. So it's just something I'm really proud of. And, you know, I think I've got a couple more in me, if I'm honest, you know, that I could do. And if the opportunity comes up, then... That's something I'd love to do again. Yeah, well, I'll just testify. I watched it the other day, obviously, in preparation for this, and, and I hadn't really heard of it until we started the, you know, connecting. But um, it was amazing from several different, le- several different levels. From a trauma medicine point of view, like when you, you have the people that were treating you and they had the, you know, the footage of your injuries, that was just mind-blowing because it set up just the the grotesque brutality of war, you know, in, in those scenes. And then how your, you know, medical personnel was still moved, you know, decades later, um, recalling the story. But then there is that fly on the wall side, like you were saying, where, you know, I, I believe that that little video clip that you just put up today of you carrying a daughter up the stairs, that was in the, the movie as well, wasn't it? When she's yeah. on your shoulders. Yeah. So, so that's the, the fly on the wall normality that you're a dad and doing the same as the rest of us. And then the Invictus games, you know, the adaptations, which I've talked a lot about to several of the adaptive athletes that I've had, but what a great time it is for adaptive athletes where in the CrossFit space and the Paralympic space and the Invictus space, it's not, oh, I don't have the right limb, so I can't do this, or I have MS, so I can't do this. It's just how am I going to work my way around, you know, the four-limbed, you know, traditional human physique and, and adapt in a way where I can suffer exactly the same next to a fall-in person on, on a concept too with my one arm and we all can relate how fucking awful it is to row on that damn rower. <laughs> yeah, you got it. So yeah, it, it was amazing. So I just wanted to say everyone out, out there, go to YouTube and watch the uh, documentary No Limits. You will not be disappointed. It's incredible. Thank you. Right. Well, then the first closing questions, I know we've been going on for over an hour and a half now. Um, your book is Man Down. Um, is there any other books that you love to recommend to people that, that you've read? It can be about something that we've talked about today or something completely different. So a couple of years ago, one, one of the things that really flipped my mindset and changed the way I looked at things, or maybe not changed it, but opened it up more was when I started reading, I read a book by a bloke called Tony Robbins. Um, and I think, I forget now, there were two of them. I think it was called Awaken the Giant Within. And it was a personal development, self-development book. And it was brilliant. And it was kind of saying all this stuff that I knew, 
and some of it was common sense, but I, I knew I wasn't applying it, and it really helped me to apply things. And then I started training in neuro-linguistic programming, and that, again, opened my mind up to a whole new way of thinking and a mindset. And I started to realize what I was saying earlier, that your, your mental health is as important as your physical health, and you need to read and go on courses and attend seminars just as much as you need to eat the right food and go and train right and rest right. And, you know, all those personal development, self-development books, you know, just get, just have as many as you can and just digest as many as you can. I, I read them all the time. Um, I love to go on courses and seminars now as well and just meet other like-minded people, you know, and that's, it's a big part of my life now. Brilliant. Did you ever see his, uh, I think it was a Netflix special documentary, I Am Not Your Mentor? I was in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so only that, for a brief second, I was at I was at that seminar called Date with Destiny in Florida, and uh, there's a point where I'm the camera pans in on the audience, and I'm sat there with a purple shirt on, taking notes while he's on stage. Brilliant! I have to watch it again now. Look for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of movies, are there any other movies that you love and or documentaries? You know, I I, I grew up. I was born in '83. I grew up as a massive. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dolph Lundgren, Bruce Willis kind of fan. So I loved all that kind of stuff growing up. But when I went through rehab, after that low point for me, I watched a movie called Bronson with Tom Hardy in it. And he, no one, I don't think, really knew who he was back then. And I watched this film, and I'm, I'm very proud to be British. And I watched this, and I thought, this guy's awesome. You know, this film's really cool. And um that kind of turned me on to the, the new age of sort of action superstars uh, in Hollywood. And so I just, I just watched anything with, uh, with Tom in, but I think the, my favorite movie of all time, and I don't mind admitting I cried at the end of it was Terminator 2. <laughs> really? I, I cried at the end of it when I first watched it, when he lowered himself into the lava, I got caught, so caught up in the story it made me cry, but that's got to be my favorite movie of all time. Was it? Was it the thumbs up that, that went down yeah, at the end? <laughs> it's just like how this human being developed this real, real relationship with a robot, and the robot had to sacrifice himself, and the boy didn't want his friend to die, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it's quite sad actually. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what's funny is I was a stuntman before I became a firefighter and I worked for Universal Studios, the theme parks, not, not the, uh, the the films. And I was a stunt double in the Terminator 2 live show. I was the bad guy, Robert Patrick. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> so I was the asshole that made you cry, technically. <laughs> that was cool. That's cool. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the next question that I always love to to ask because it just opens up so many you know rabbit holes, as it were. But is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to talk to the first responders and military of the world? Oh man, there's loads. Um, so many people that I've met through through rehab, through Invictus. Um, I mean, I don't know if you, do you, do you speak to people all around the world? Yeah, literally I can, I can Skype anywhere on the planet and space if they've got an internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I have to think about that. There's so many people that I can think of. Um, let me have a think and I'll drop you an email. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. 
All right. So then the very last question before we talk about, you know, where we can find you and, and where people contribute to, to the charity. Um, what do you do to decompress when you are not making movies, writing books and doing charity fundraisers? A train. That is how I decompress. It's It sounds bizarre, but it it's so therapeutic for me just to, because I enjoy it so much. Just to do something I enjoy, you know, at my own leisure, training, uh, lifting weights, doing cardio, doing CrossFit, doing jujitsu. That's just how I decompress. Um, and then if you do, you want to talk about something that's not physical, you know, really relaxing, I'm just a big movie buff. I just love watching films, especially this time of year when all the all the Christmas ones are. I was just about to watch Jingle All the Way, actually, with the kids, but they've gone to bed now. That was based on a true story, wasn't it? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never um, was you know one thing I forgot to talk before we do that very final one. You said jujitsu, so tell me about Royal Marines jujitsu. Oh man, that's awesome! You know, like I said, I was I was a full contact kickboxer and a Muay Thai fighter before I was injured. And I just loved everything about martial arts, the physical aspect, the mental aspect, the respect, the honor, the discipline, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when I was injured, I thought, well, that's, that's my life in the martial arts world over. And then this guy, who I didn't know at the time, a serving Royal Marine color sergeant, physical training instructor called Sam Sheriff came up to me and said, look, do you want to try jujitsu? Now, in the beginning, I was like, not really, mate, no. Because this is just some sort of pity thing you're going to do where you're going to let me win and I'm going to have this easy session. You're going to say how great you think I am and it's a way to make me feel good. And I went down there and I got my ass handed to me and I had to really work for it. And I found out that actually it was probably the most inclusive martial art that you can do as a, as a disabled person. Because there's, there's nothing, you know, in karate or kung fu or you have to kick you have to punch you do the the katas and the movements you know so you have to have all your limbs to a degree but in jiu-jitsu you don't because you're down on the deck you're rolling you're choking people you're submitting people you know you're crawling all over the place and someone in my position can actually compete with an able-bodied person you know and in certain situations it's an advantage to be me in jujitsu because there's not so much to grab onto. And like I said earlier, I, I'll use my chin, my, my stumps, you know, I'll, I'll jam them into parts of your body that other people can't jam them into and just do what I can with what I've got left to, to win the fight. You know, I love it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And it just doesn't matter who you are. People just, if people try jujitsu, and again, it's that work ethic. If you try jujitsu and you don't like being choked out or, hum, you know, not humiliate is the wrong word, having your pride questioned, I guess is a more, you know, gentle way of saying it, then you're probably going to run away. But for the rest of the people that are prepared to, to leave their ego at the front door and, and, you know, uh, go on an evening, play, even playing field, no matter who these people are. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's loved by everyone, the Navy SEALs and the business people and, you know, you name it. It's just such a, a, an amazing art. And actually, speaking of which, I'm sitting down with Hoist Gracie next week to interview him for the show. Okay. So I've trained with him. Yeah. Are you trained with him? He's, a, he's an ambassador for Reorg. In fact, Hoist 
signed my white belt. I've got a signed white belt by Hoist. Really? Okay, I'll have to. Yeah. Bring, I'll bring that up when I interview him. Then that's that's a reorg is a is a, a foundation he works with. Uh, Hodger does. Yeah, he's an ambassador for it. Gotcha. Brilliant. All right. Well, it's been such an amazing conversation, but I want to make sure that we talk about where everyone can find you online, where they can find you on social media, and then if they if they want to contribute, where's the best place to do that? So I'm. I'm in all the normal places, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. I've got the website, markwomrod.com. You can pretty much find me anywhere uh, if you just Google Mark Wormrod. Um And I'm active every day on social media, like most people are. Um, trying to keep up with it and respond to as many people as I can, but it's getting progressively harder. And if they want to donate to the charity, I, I have a page set up on Just Given. If you just Google Mark Wormrod Just Given, there's a page there where they can contribute or failing that just go onto the Royal Marines charity website and you can leave a donation there. Brilliant. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. You've been so generous, but the reality is your story is so incredible. I think it just takes this long to really tell it properly. And, you know, then obviously all, all the, the things you've done, you know, since then. So uh, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. My pleasure, mate. Well, there you go. Slightly longer than the regular No Limits podcast, but I think you'll agree uh, he's very good at what he does. So, James, thank you for letting me on your podcast. Hopefully one day uh, I'll return the favour. Guys, thank you, as always, for your continued support. Please don't forget to subscribe to the No Limits podcast and leave a review. And also, because James did me the great favour of having me as a guest on his podcast, please jump on over there and hit that subscribe button to the Behind the Shield podcast too. Guys, I will catch you next time.